0: Welcome to Cowen Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers
1: together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. My name is Colby Sinusel, and I'm the equity research analyst at Cowen covering communications infrastructure and telecom services. Today, we're joined by Jay Edelson, who is the co-founder of Equinix and several other companies, uh, including Center Electric, a VC firm focused on IoT and sits on the board of Megaport. Uh, he's joining us as part of our Leaders, Legends, Luminaries, and Visionaries podcast series. Uh, Jay, thanks for being here.
0: It's my pleasure.
1: Um, I wanted to start just talking a little bit about your, your, your background, your, your history, um, before we kind of go into the founding of Equinix and then some of the things you've been doing since then. But I was reading that you graduated in, in 1992 uh, from Boston University and that you studied film and broadcasting, uh, but with a concentration in computer science. And I'm just curious, was the computer science degree like your, your fallback plan in case the film part didn't work out?
0: Well, see, I love that you're giving me the credit for having a plan of any kind. <laughs> you know, I... I uh... What I knew when I went in to Bosch University was that uh, I was really into both radio and film and computers. And then within the computer universe, I was, I was, you know, since I was 10 years old, playing around with telecommunications. And so I wouldn't even say just computers in general. Like I really loved telecom, which I know sounds strange, um, bulletin board systems and all that. So when I went to college, I didn't really know which way I was gonna go. And I ended up deciding to focus on film and broadcasting and I got my degree in that. And then I had the computer science uh, concentration, which allowed me to take any courses I wanted to without any other requisites. So I could skip things like discrete math, which a lot of people love, I couldn't stand. And, uh, And all the calculus courses and just focus on coding. But when I graduated, I was an audio engineer, and that was my plan. I I got an internship out here in California, did a bunch of uh, contract sound work, post-production. I just couldn't eat. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the rest is kind of history.
1: It's funny. I feel like there's so many people that have some general idea of what they want to do in college, but so many of us end up coming out and you know, what we end up doing is not (laughs) probably anywhere close to what we thought we were going to do the day that we actually graduated.
0: No, that's right. And I remember I gave a commencement speech at Boston University 20 years later. And, you know, part part of the thought process of creating that speech was remembering sitting in that audience and really having no clue. I mean, I think I think the problem was, where would you live? How would you eat? What would be like the mechanism of just transporting yourself out of this you know, expensive town and into another one? Um, these tactical issues and, and the idea of like a career <laughs> or some kind of plan, it wasn't, it wasn't even close to uh, realized in my head. And that was my message I think to a lot of the students was, you know you got to kind of focus on on the little bites and trying to find something to be passionate about in in a job that may not appear related to your you know particular passions that you had as you went through college.
1: So soon after college, if I got this correct you, you took a little bit of time off to travel. I'm curious if, first off do I have that right and, and <laughs> if I if I am where, where did you go? And and would you advise others, you know, now in retrospect, maybe your your own kids, taking that time off to kind of experience the world before really kind of grinding into a career?
0: I think a gap year or two or five is a great idea. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting that it be completely unstructured and that there not be work in there and some kind of, uh, you know, income or plan, but I do think we rush. And everybody jumps in. This is the way it's done. Four years of school, maybe grad school, maybe not. Jump right into a career and in a cube somewhere. Any amount of time, whether it's just a few months or or a year or whatever, really does give you perspective. It, It slows you down. It gets you off of that, I don't know, the treadmill. And in my case, yeah, you know, I'd come out, I was working as an audio engineer. I couldn't barely pay my rent with it. Uh, and I just decided to do one of those $3,000 tickets. I don't even know if you could still do this anymore, but you get like, you would spend $3,000 and you could have as many stops as you wanted to. So you could go like anywhere in the world but you could only cross the you know northern southern hemisphere twice but you could do this for a year if you wanted to as many flights as you wanted these travel agencies used to be in the classifieds in the back of the new york times you know so you would uh so so i i got one of those tickets i sold all of my worldly possessions which pretty much was nothing except for maybe an amiga computer and uh and like a closet of like three shirts, <laughs> and I, and I went to Southeast Asia. I mean, I, I it was, it was a nine month trip. I stopped in a lot of places. Um, I spent about forty five days or so in Nepal. Uh, you know, it wasn't like I wouldn't call this trip transformative. I would just say it gave me the time to kind of. Uh, get that perspective that I really needed. And also, I got really hungry. And by the time I got back, I was very focused on, you know, what could I do? How could I work my myself into the, you know, sort of corporate American universe and uh, and make a living?
1: Very cool. I, I did something a bit more mainstream. After graduating, uh, my mom pro- gave me two options. She said she, she'd either give me a really nice watch <laughs> for or she would help fund uh, a backpacking trip across Western Europe. And, and I chose Western Western Europe and I got the Eurorail pass, yes. uh, which effectively allowed you to go all over for some period of time. And uh, it was a great trip. And I actually kept a journal and you know I, I've read it a few times since then. And I kind of talked about what I wanted out of my life going forward. And uh, it's pretty neat uh, to have that. But to your point, it, it gave me perspective. Um, which was I think you know, in, in hindsight really helpful. So in, in 1993, so about a year after you graduate, you, you do get serious and you go to work for NETCOM, uh, which was a dial-up ISP. And then in 1996, you, you go to work for a company called uh, DEC, which I don't know if everybody knows that, but it's, it's Digital Equipment Corporation, which I think at the time was referred to as digital, which made computers, but also owned PACS. Uh, right. or intended to own PAX. So, so what was or is PAX? Let's, let's start there.
0: Okay. Well, uh, you know, I think for your listeners, you kind of have to go back in time to, to the mid 90s. And as much as it's sort of impossible to imagine a world without a commercial internet, you know, 94 was really the first time that you could buy a connection and dial up to the internet. Before that, it was bulletin boards and AOL and CompuServe and all that. And when I was working at Netcom, we were one of the first to really offer that kind of connectivity, both for business and and consumers. By the time 96 rolled around, the internet was exploding and growing so fast that the decisions that were made in 94 to make it commercial were obsolete. And a lot of the ways that networks could interconnect were growing super congested. And Bob Metcalf at the time had famously said that the internet would collapse by the end of 96. And I just remember at the time, because back to you know my roots, I loved this idea of the world being connected. I was very passionate about it. The stuff that we were doing at NetCom was largely about sort of getting regular mainstream people on the internet and connecting them together. And so it's not surprising that uh, Digital Equipment, who who has this Network Systems Laboratory, uh, or had in um, in Palo Alto, and up until that point, you know, it it lost a little bit to Internet history. They were doing a lot of the stuff that was required at the core of the Internet. Like for example, there still is this Usenet global message board that's still active today that was one of the first applications before even the web that was run on the internet they were running the core of that the core machines that sort of kept that organized wow very that, cool it was so cool and i knew about it because i was working you know running network operations at, at uh, netcom and i got recruited by al avery who who had been working there to basically take this research project, which was taking two of the original networks that Paul Vixie and Stephen Stewart had arranged connectivity between these two networks, Alternet and Barnet, and uh, take that concept and really make it a product or a business, the concept of an exchange point, but a neutral one. Because back in you know the early 90s, the reason the internet was congested is because when the government handed over the keys, they handed it over to the telecom companies. And they built these uh, exchange points that were growing congested. And if you were NetCom or somebody else, you had to pay one of these big carriers for all of your internet traffic, unless you could connect to everyone else directly. And most of them just said, Well, this this particular exchange point is owned by me. I'm AT&T or I'm Sprint. And uh, we're only gonna allow other folks like us to connect to us here, right? But a neutral exchange point was different. Everyone was gonna be treated the same. We didn't treat carriers different than we would treat content providers or enterprises. Everybody was basically the same. And that experiment started in that basement in Palo Alto. Uh, I don't think we expected it to become as, as successful as quickly as it did, Um, but it kind of, it created a whole bunch of problems because the company was getting acquired by Compaq.
1: Digital was.
0: Yeah. Digital. So digital at the time that I joined had 120,000 employees. Right now it's, uh, you know, really the the closest thing that I think most people think about is IBM and just in terms of scope and scale of a, of a company. Uh, talk about a change from startup of netcom. That was a education for me. I think they gave me a book with like 20 pages thick with three letter acronyms for every process in the company. But, uh, but yeah, it was complicated. They didn't know what to do with this as a business. They really didn't. I mean, the, the research and development group, Paul and Steven and Brian Reed, you know, we were in R&D. So we were given a, a, pretty, a, a lot of freedom to do what we needed to do. But when it came to uh, a research project making money and actually being a profitable business, I think it was very confusing to an organization that makes computers.
1: Okay, so a few things. So first off, these access exchange points that you're referring to that were run by the telcos, am I right that those are what we thought of as May East and and May West, and it was Ameritech in Chicago, and you mentioned Sprint, which I think got the one in New Jersey. I mean, these initial interconnect points were allocated by the government to telcos. That was the logical place, but it was somewhat of a a gated system. They kind of controlled You know how they wanted to operate and run those. And the whole idea of PAX, which again was formed out of digital, was to kind of create this neutral platform. And even though it wasn't a big part of what digital was or was known for, they certainly had the capital to invest and they had an R&D lab. And and that's what you were brought in to kind of figure out.
0: That's right. Yeah. I I don't think when I joined um, as the operations manager of this of this business unit inside of R and D I don't think that anyone really knew necessarily what the business would look like. Like they didn't know what the product specifically was like, would it be cross connects or would it be a switch fabric? Um, how much of the service we maintain, how would we be regulated? Right? No one knew yet. And we had to learn all these things. Um, you know, we invented our own three letter acronyms, like, PNI and CNI, and we realized very quickly that up until that point, almost everything on the internet was metered. So if you're a telecom company and you open up uh, an exchange point and you're the service that needs to be leased to get in the door, you're gonna charge based on volume. And, And I think our thought was, well, if we flat rate it and we say, "All right, instead of it being megabits per second or what have you, it's just a wire, and a wire costs two hundred bucks a month or whatever it is, uh, and you can run any amount of bandwidth you want over that, and if you want more of these, just order more of them," it changes the whole economic model of the of this of this exchange point.
1: Yeah, the, so first the carriers cross connected
0: Yeah, I mean it's it, a cross connect. So cross-connects existed. You could go to data centers or carrier hotels and you can order cross-connects. But if you, but if you did that, the way you were billed was based on an advanced service like a T1 or a DS3. Or if it was you know MFS Datanet, which owned May East and May West, they had sort of Ethernet over Metro at the time. And so they had their own um, sort of billing methodology. We were a neutral exchange point. So we weren't a carrier. We didn't make money from network services. And so what we came up with was this idea of, you know, a flat rate and a port and and a cross connect. And we didn't really classify you as a carrier and charge you a different thing than say Yahoo at the time that came in and also had a network and we treated them the exact same way we treated Sprint. Which by the way, it wasn't, (laughs) at first it created, it certainly ruffled some feathers. Let's just put it that way.
1: Sure. So you mentioned Al. So Al Avery and you are the two co-founders of of Equinix. So what makes you and Al leave digital uh, after creating PACS and and ultimately move on to start what, what ultimately becomes Equinix? What, what, what's the bridge? What, 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 what has to happen for that? Well,
0: I think there are two people, really, that kind of influenced us in that regard. One is Andy Ratcliffe. Andy Ratcliffe, who had been one of the founders of Benchmark Capital. Andy, uh, you know, also the founder of Wealthfront. He is... Uh, a VC, uh, venture capitalist based in the Bay Area. And he had a portfolio company, a DSL company called North Point that was located in the Palo Alto Exchange. And he toured the the exchange one time. We are, You have to understand a normal carrier hotel would be these dark, damp, cold uh, basement rooms. Uh, we built the Palo Alto Exchange to be really pretty and have like sliding glass doors and have like a lobby area. And, you know, it was really good for tours. The lighting was beautiful. And so we brought him through this and explained the model to him. And of course, the very first thing he thought of was this this is big. This could be a really big, you know, multi-billion dollar opportunity as venture capitalists might do. Uh, There was another uh, guy, one of the founders of of, a company that I knew named John Mays. John had uh, been one of the co-inventors of uh, the PIX, which was the first network address translation device that Cisco acquired. And John had been the only person I knew who had started a company and sold it to someone, in this case, Cisco. And he also knew about the Palo Alto Exchange and said, wow, this is a big idea, you guys should do it. And for a year, Al and I would talk about it. Like, should we do it? Uh, can we convince Digital to do it? We were very loyal to Digital, and we kept going back to Bob Supnick, who's the VP, who was the VP of R&D at Digital at the time. We kept asking for permission to expand it, traveled around the world, uh, getting people uh, excited about these as sort of economic development opportunities. But it just we couldn't move it as a business unit. We couldn't we couldn't move the needle. And so uh, right about the time that uh, Compaq had come in and, and basically told us they were gonna convert everything into dial-up POPs for, for their personal computers to connect to the internet, we're like, okay, that's not what this is for. We announced to uh, Bob Sutnick that we were gonna quit and, and start Equinix.
1: So you had gone to digital in 1996 and just to give some people some perspective on timing, it's in June of 1998. When you and Al leave Digital to find co-found uh, Equinix, Wh- who are your main investors? You mentioned a few guys that kind of had told you along the way, like this could be huge. But you know, I, I honestly, when I've tried to go and look back, I don't know who the who the core investors were that kind of got this off the ground for you guys.
0: Well, we had we we had some good some good advice. We didn't get VC money. In. Immediately, we got some angels to just sort of uh, bridge the gap because the old model, anyway, was that you would build a sort of an initial business plan, uh, get your, your core team together, get everything rolling, and then you'd go raise money because otherwise your value would be too low and the investors would take too much of the business. So we got John Mays, another guy named Johnson Wu, Ed Kazell, who is the former CTO of Cisco. I want to say, I'm trying to remember who the other angels were, but there was a couple other angels in there. And then about six months later, we brought in about $15 million in Series A capital from Benchmark Capital, Cisco, and Microsoft. Oh, and Stanford University. Wow. I can't believe I remember all this. It's a long time ago, man.
1: (laughs) We're recording it, so it'll it'll last in history. Now
0: (laughs) there you go. But yeah, it was it was a venture deal that that was at a time during the dot com boom. So there was, you know, there were venture deals being cut. You know, in every corner of, you know, you'd walk into uh, a restaurant in Palo Alto and you'd see entrepreneurs facing one direction and vcs facing the other at every table it was it was a crazy time and uh you know just to give you an idea some of the other companies that were invested in the same fund included ebay right and other like consumer internet businesses exodus was a big hosting company you know at the time and people were very confused over the difference between our model and a hosting model at the time because hosting had gone public already and people knew that. But yeah, those were our, those were our early investors. And our first board of directors included Mike Volpe, um, actually it was Charlie Giancarlo and the, for Cisco. And then later um, Mike Volpe as CTO of Cisco or CSO of Cisco, I think he was, uh, was on our board and Scott Krenz from Juniper And, uh, you know, it was, it was, uh, and Andy Ratcliffe from Benchmark. It was a good core team to to launch the business.
1: Very cool. So two, two years later in, in August of 2000, uh, UIPO, uh, and, and then you ultimately stay on for another five years, uh, I believe as chief technology officer, that was the title that you had, but then you leave in, in 2005, you know, why, why leave? Was it simply your work was done? You kind of caught this entrepreneurial bug and you, Wanted to do that again opposed to see Equinix, you know, ultimately to the company it is today. I mean, like, what, what was uh, the reason for leaving at the time?
0: Mm, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the context that's important to understand here is that 9-11 happened. Mm. And um, now remember, we went public in August of 2000. The NASDAQ then crashes. So our stock becomes like
1: six months or something, it it crashes, yeah. soon after,
0: so basically, you know here we were on this on this incredibly successful business. We had raised all this money, hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, IPO went well, had great underwriters. Everything's going well. Revenue is growing. And despite that, the NASDAQ crashes. So stock is plummeting. And then, you know, by the time 9-11 happened, there's a lot of stress being a founder of a company, watching your stock go to zero. And then uh, IT spending, you know, just completely stops due to the dot-com crash. And then September of 2001 comes. And uh, I was in New York with Al. We were presenting to Morgan Stanley, I believe. And the uh, and the World Trade Center thing happened, and we were stuck in New York City for about um, I don't know. Uh, I think I was. I think we split up. I was. I ended up staying in Newark for about a week before I could get home. And you know, I, everything changed. Um, the government took a, a real. Uh, deep interest in internet infrastructure and cybersecurity. I started getting roped into a lot of that stuff um, around, you know, uh, anti-terrorism and, and uh, spending a lot of time in DC understanding that whole world. And I don't think that I had kind of signed up for that. Like, I don't think that, that uh, I really wanted to be that person and, and, and be, Uh, you know, have that kind of of responsibility. I think that was part of it. I think the other part of it is I had three little kids. My first daughter was born in uh, 1998, right? About two months before we founded Equinix. My second was born in 2000. So he turned one on September 12th, 2001. And my, you know, my youngest daughter hadn't, wasn't born yet, but, you know, she was born a couple of years later in 2002 or a year later and so I had these three little kids. I was never home. Uh, you know, I was flying all over the world for Equinix. And I remember specifically there was this really weird week where um, I got a call from some people I knew in D.C., and they said, "Hey, uh, the the you know the Department of Homeland Security is is forming a cybersecurity oversight committee." and they're having hearings on Monday. And one of the big companies backed out. And can you fly to DC and testify before Congress and write something before Monday, <laughs> right? And I'm like, I, I mean, I'm, I'm one of those people, I feel I'm a patriot. I, I want to be, you know, if, if somebody calls you from the government and says they need your help, you know, my instinct is to do everything I can. I'm trying to help. So I call my wife, who I think she had the flu, and three kids there. And I said, hey, I've been called to Washington, D.C. to testify before Congress. A lot of swearing back and forth later. (laughs) She's like, okay, you have to do that. I fly to D.C. I spend the whole weekend writing this testimony, you know, in a hotel room. I do this thing, which is, Stressful <laughs> and, and perhaps needlessly so, because I don't know if anybody uh, who was actually listening to us testify knew what the internet was. Um, and then I get a call that uh, my uncle passed away in Detroit. So I, f- I tell my wife I have to fly back and I fly to Detroit to, you know, to his funeral. Then I fly back to uh, uh, San Francisco where my wife lives. And, and my mother-in-law is there helping uh, my wife because she had been sick and the three kids. And as I arrived literally from the airport, my wife, Brenda, her, her grandmother had passed away. Literally like that day. This is all in one week. We fly to New York where she grew up. And I remember like, it was like a day later, she turned to me and she said, we're done with we're done with the Bay area. We're done. It's over. I need to be near my family. This is going to happen right now. And I'm like, you're right. And she says, and we're not doing, you're not doing this thing where you're flying all over the world anymore. You're going to be home. I said, you're right, let's do it. And so we moved to rural New York. And i just pulled the throttle back on As That's the best way I can put it. I was, I was I going into the, the offices, I tried to find other people to do what I did. Um, I, I very intentionally pulled myself out of a lot of decision-making uh, at a time when I think the leadership at Equinix really needed the opposite. They needed people to come in and sort of, you know, really lead this business on its upswing. And really by 2003, 2004, things were definitely turning around. Equinix was, uh, stock was performing incredibly well. And so, you know, I think my plan was I was going to quit and become a school teacher. Didn't quite happen that way, but that was the plan.
1: All right. Fair enough. Well, I appreciate the uh, the, the candor. And um, I always think it's, it's really great to hear stories like that, just to get a sense of where people's heads are. You know, we see all these figures at these companies and, you know, there's a lot of pressure uh, and, and there's a lot of dedication to the job and you know there's there's points where people just pull the parachute at least for a little bit and, and, and reset expectations and priorities and you know, clearly you, you went back at it again but for at least a little bit of time you needed to kind of <laughs> step back, which uh, I think we all could appreciate. So if we go back to the founding purpose of Equinix, uh, it was the that unlike the telco operator operated data centers uh, at its time, you know, Equinix was neutral as, as you mentioned If you flash forward 23 years later, where we're at today, when you look at the way that third-party data center sector has evolved, so maybe not just Equinix, do you think we've maintained that level of intended neutrality?
0: Well, neutrality is an interesting, it's a very interesting word. I have found that, that a simple rule is, do you compete with your customers? Because, you know, in all this discussion around what net neutrality is and neutrality in general and the Switzerland of the internet and all these kind of uh, terms we throw around, the reality is, is that the conflict of interest is, is the issue. Is there a situation where uh, your business will do better due to the failure or, or maybe the restriction of another? Uh, and, and And I think that in order to have the trust of your customers, you have to make sure not to cross that line. And so, yes, I think that a lot of the data center companies that exist out there, whether they have networks or not, are able to maintain that level of trust with their customers. It is not as complicated as it was, I think, in the late nineties coming out of this hierarchical model of the internet to one where, you know, it was a level playing field because back then there was so much distrust and people had been price gouged so much that, um, you know, it was either going to be the government was going to regulate it and make sure that it didn't happen, or we were going to have to self-regulate and, and do it another way with neutrality. And so, here we are all these years later and data center companies, there's so many, you know, uh, Digital Realty and, and, and all of these guys, uh, you know, CoreSight. Um, and if you look at the ones that were acquired by Equinix over the years, like Switching and Data and, and uh, Telecity and, uh, you know, I think that in the context of their time, wherever their time was, I think they all did maintain that level of neutrality. The, the, the questionable ones were these sort of mixed uh, telecom hosting, you know, but, but they weren't trying to solve the same problem. If you're trying to solve the interconnection problem, then that s- neutrality meant a very specific thing. And you can almost take the stack, the protocol stack, and you can all figure out what the neutral model is, you know, almost anywhere from the physical layer to the application layer. And I think that, you know, as we get into this sort of more, you know, cloud, multi-cloud, hybrid cloud, whatever cloud universe, the same rules apply. Depending on where you sit in that supply chain, there is a important rule you must not break, which you must not compete with your customers.
1: So Equinix in in recent years uh, has introduced Equinix Fabric, Mm -hmm. Uh, and then which enables connectivity across regions uh, and then digital realty which you mentioned just last week announced its purchase of the engineering team and IP of a peer port which is you know in my opinion was was striving to be more like a mega port um, mm. is that a logical next step for the for the sector to provide those types of services
0: I, I think so I, th- I think that there is um, increased complexity in uh, accessing all of the services and microservices that, that you need as an enterprise today. And it, it, I would even take that a step farther. I would say to deliver a network service, there's even uh, complexity in delivering that. And, and so the, the question is, how can you abstract the consumer or the enterprise from that complexity and yet give them enough control over the outcome. And so if you're a data center provider, the problem is, is that you've got a thousand different, you know, uh, participants in your in your exchanges or your co-location. And they all have different types of services. They're all very complicated. They offer they operate at different layers of the stack. And, and if I'm an enterprise coming in there, it's basically useless to me. I came from a world of transit where I just sort of popped a wire into a hole in the wall and magic happened. And now I'm in this new world of hybrid cloud and, and uh, where, where I am expected to trust services on a network at a level I've never expected before. And so I think it's important that whoever is talking to that customer provide them that level of trust and confidence through that abstraction still uh, and sometimes that means operating a form of a network or maybe a portal of some kind to allow you to configure it or usage-based billing.
1: It's a really great and interesting point, which is, you know, I'll use Equinix just as the example, but they've, they've earned this trust from their customers, this, this view that they know what they're doing, that they're capable, that they're there to help their customers. And to the extent that, that they're offering you some of these connectivity services, the customer might feel very comfortable and want to buy those from them because there's that established trust that they know that if they're getting it through Equinix, there's been some vetting, there's been some level of expertise that's gone into making sure it's going to work the way that it's being described.
0: 100%. And actually, Equinix, I, I don't know like the whole story behind the other companies, but I do know that when Equinix... Uh, you know uh, Bill Long, who was in charge of interconnection there, Peter Van Camp and Charles Myers. Um, I talked to all of them as they were formulating this 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 thought, and and I remember you know, it was a it was a concern I think that they all had. What would happen, and and would there would there be a, a misunderstanding? And so to their credit, they went to their largest customers, including their network customers and said, how do you feel about this? If we do this, what do you think? If we start offering some of these services to make your, first of all, would you consume it yourself? Would you participate on, on, on this? They did the same thing with cloud exchange. Um, it's, it's very much a position of trust that they took great pains to maintain and i and i think they did a really great job and, and i always dreamed of being able to offer the services that they can offer today i mean it's really cool and and we tried to some extent uh, within a data center but but yeah I, I do think that they have gone to great pains to make sure that they didn't cross that line
1: how does um so you're on the board of Megaport. How does... A megaport fit in this? I mean, what role does a megaport, a, a packet fabric, a console? You know, what role do they play relative to what we just described as the role that perhaps Equinix has the right or should play?
0: Well, I do think there's a physical and a virtual, right? And and I think that um, uh, if you just look at from a practical standpoint, what it takes to deploy an international presence across you know, sometimes hundreds of data centers around the world, it's not, it is unreasonable to expect that every enterprise and every network service provider um, is going to actually go through that process themselves. Um, And then within that problem set where there's this void where you need to solve sort of uh, these problems to be able to do so in a way that still gives the enterprise control over that network, but virtualizes that presence is really a fascinating, a fascinating concept um, because it, it, it satisfies that CTO, CIO, you know, head of security need to sort of control the, the details, but it doesn't require you to actually physically be there. And so I could sit in front of a uh, you know a computer with Megaport and with a few button presses deploy an international you know backbone and have virtual presences everywhere I need them to be. That means that the company like Megaport or whoever it is has to physically do that infrastructure and place those those uh, locations and operate it that way. But it also required a technology evolution, um, both on the client side and on the the service provider side, because in order for them to really automate that kind of thing, companies like Amazon and Microsoft and Google needed to start offering their services in a way that could be directly cross-connected. And that took a while. And then once that happened, to be able to automate it using software-defined uh, tools. That took a while. And then on the flip side, on the on the client side, on the enterprise side, the SD-WAN revolution, of course, um, and really getting to a level of, well, certainty and reliability that um, would allow you to have that kind of fine-tuned control and speed. The speed of deployment now is everything. I just can't believe how fast, uh, you know, these things get get lit up. Just ordering an MPLS uh, connection back in the day would take like a month, a month and a half. You know, now it's, you know, you've already got Comcast in there. So you've got SD Win. let's go, let's light it up. It takes a day. So so it's a different world. Um, Megaport is a really interesting company because I think that they culturally are all about uh, creating these, these um, uh, still abstracting you from the complexity, but giving you as much control as you want, uh, and their partners, I think, um, pretty much prove the point because they they've got some pretty credible players yeah, on their no, platform.
1: Vince has done a great job, uh, and uh, you know I, I I also have admiration for uh, for what they've done. It sounds like your description is that they're really complementary to what Equinix is is doing, and further expanding the touch points, if you will, um, you know, on behalf of the customers that are looking to go or wherever it is they're looking to go. Are you familiar with network as a service companies like Aviatrix and, and Epsilon and, and Alcura? And, you know, admittedly that, that's starting to get into the software slash equipment technology side for me. And it's, 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 it's I'm, I'm starting to learn, I'm, I'm ramping, but I'm just curious <laughs> if you have an opinion of, of companies like that and where they fit within this conversation.
0: Well, as I was saying before, you know, I think within that abstraction that we give an enterprise consumer of, of network, there's different specialties. Um, certainly, the deployment of a network automatically is is maybe one common thread, or the ability to connect to certain types of cloud services is another. But but different networks have different different capabilities. Some um, offer you know security some offer uh, special tools around hybrid cloud management, uh, storage, um, all sorts of compute uh, there's there's so many companies in the space if you look across the portfolio investments uh, across Silicon Valley right now you will see hundreds of companies that have hybrid cloud in their company description mm-hmm. right? Now, do they are are they all the same? No, I mean everybody's got an angle, and I do think that there is value to these companies. Some of them will appear on platforms like like Megaport or you know something like uh, you know Cloud Exchange. I think others um, are basically stepping into that space to try and compete with the Megaports and and actually roll out their own networks and their own infrastructure and software uh, but but there's a lot of room in here for a lot of value to be offered. What's interesting is back in the day I know I'm like as if I'm I'm talking about ancient times but uh, you would often get in the early 90s if you wanted to connect the internet you would sometimes find a, a little you know floppy disk at your local you know grocery store, you take it home, you put it in. It would be a mom and pop shop that was set up in your local city. And they bought internet connectivity. They call themselves a the tier three. They would buy it from somebody like maybe Netcom, And then Netcom would buy it from somebody, maybe UUNet. And then UUNet would buy it from somebody, maybe Sprint, you know, or whatever. I mean, and I'm using those in the internet history, you know that that is a not accurate hierarchy right there. But, but the idea was is that, From a consumer standpoint, I didn't know the difference. It was transit. Nowadays, uh, it's it's not that different in that these network services often buy their product from another network service provider who's making it easy for them to, to offer their value add on top of it. And so some of the customers, you know, if you're a banking institution, you might want to have very specific control and understanding of, of who sits between you and, you know, how many layers of network hierarchy are there between me the, and the end. And I, and I think that some of those players are, are, are sort of tier three, and some are tier two, and some are tier one.
1: In the last few minutes we have left, I wanted to kind of just move topics and and talk about something just real quickly, maybe what the audience's uh, appetite here, then we'll move on. But in your current role at at Center Electric, which which is your VC firm, uh, you note that Center Electric believes that the Internet of Things, or IoT, is the most revolutionary expansion of computing since the dawn of the personal computer. Uh, The things themselves are a bellwether of the internet's third wave. What do you mean by third wave?
0: (laughs) Well, it's sort of like a pendulum. If you think of it back to that hierarchy, we went from the edge and really the the concept of, of basically disconnected to the core again. And then now we're back to the edge again. And I feel like the iot revolution is really about not just connecting you know your refrigerator it's about really moving that that uh, source of compute from the core to the edge as that happens you still need a core and you still need all of these different parts of the of, of the supply chain but if you just think about crypto just just and this is the only time i'm going to mention crypto just as an example, it's a distributed platform, right? Where we are no longer dependent on a core data database sitting in a in a you know cornfield someplace. And so, I think IoT, it, it, at least in my opinion, was the sort of marketing term we all used in you know 2010 to really describe this move uh, to connect everything. And we didn't really understand the value of that really. And then autonomous vehicles and a bunch of different applications and crypto and other things really sort of to play into this distributed world. Internet people know about distributed systems. We've been using them forever. But even in those distributed systems, they sat on servers and racks in place, right? That world is gone. And really the data center has moved from a single location to being everywhere. And that's to me, the third wave. And we made investments as a venture firm in companies that were, I guess you could call them ingredient technologies towards that end. Um, I am not a venture capitalist anymore. Uh, I still operate that fund uh, with Andy Smith who I co-founded that with. and. And we uh, still have good relationships with those portfolio companies, um, but I do think that in a way we've moved on. Like that has happened now, and it's sort of expected that everything has compute in it, including a pinball machine.
1: Well, why don't we uh, end with that then? So, if anybody, you know, I, I, we're conducting this interview over video, and I could see that behind Jay, he's got a, a handful of pinball machines. So. Uh, this is the lightning round, Jay. So, we're going to try and keep it to 30 second answers. But first off, you know, what is Scorbit?
0: Scorbit is a connected pinball platform, it, it's basically like Xbox Live, but for real world games like video games and pinball machines.
1: And you own Scorbit, uh, as part of uh, my own due diligence, I saw there was an article in Fast Company back in. June of 2019, if anyone wants to look it up, but Scorbit is uh, your passion project right now, it sounds like.
0: That's right. Me and, and two buddies, Ron Richards and Brian O'Neill, uh, we got into this because we, we all like pinball and we, we love the community. And we noticed that each pinball machine in the world is a computer and none of them were connected. And we thought, well, it would be kind of fun just as a passion project to see if we can create sort of an overlay and this happened in parallel to me and my son. My son um, and I started restoring pinball machines together. And the article goes into that a little bit more detail, but, but my son has helped me with the business and my, and my other kids um, and my wife. And Ron and Brian and I have, we launched the business officially in September of 2020, right in the middle of a global pandemic. And now we have thousands of pinball machines around the world that are connected and all trading scores and challenging each other and unlocking achievements on games that were made in the 1970s or 1980s or 2000s. And uh, super fun.
1: Uh, Two more last questions. Uh, When do you think you'll be ready to travel again to attend some type of industry event?
0: (laughs) Well, uh, so I think that, um, assuming I can get vaccinated before the summer, I still think I'm going to have uh, a hard time getting back into the swing of things. I I would say probably would be next year before I start attending regular events, unless it's a pinball event, in which case I might make an exception.
1: Fair enough. And then my last question, uh, when you tell people that you co-founded Equinix, how many of them think that you mean the gym Equinox?
0: About 95% think I've founded the gym and are more impressed with that (laughs) <laughs> that uh, I founded a $50 billion, like nobody even knows what. And so I, I just go with it. I just roll with it and hope that they think I'm more physically fit as a result.
1: Nice. Very cool. Well, with that, we are done. Uh, Jay, thanks so much. Really appreciate your time. And I look forward to seeing you in person, uh, like apparently in some point in 2022.
0: <laughs> yes, it was a wonderful, it was wonderful participating. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Thanks for joining us.
0: Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.